and we are live. So good evening and good day everyone. I hope you are all well. Welcome to episode 2 of Ask Abhijit. So yesterday I took a lot of questions that were asked below uh, before the live uh, stream. And because of that I ended up missing a lot of the live chat questions that you asked me. And some of you even uh, purchased some super chat stickers. So it was a learning experience for me for the first live stream. And uh, so thank you very much to everyone who asked me these questions. And thank you, especially to those who purchased Super Chat. I appreciate it very much. And today I'm going to make this a completely uh, interactive session. I'm going to take your questions that you're asking me in real time. So let's begin. And let me take this question from Yashwant. So Yashwant asks, where did R1A originate? Various reports claim different places, including India, Iran, etc. Why is it now dominant point of view by AIT? Could Scythians and other responsible for the gene flow, etc. Right. So for those of you who don't know, R1A is a genetic lineage. It's a patrilineal genetic lineage. It's called a haplogroup in genetic terminology. So it's a lineage that is passed on from father to son. It's a specific genetic mutation. And uh, the uh, genetic uh, research shows that this lineage is at least 15 to 20,000 years old. And there is a lot of controversy about where it has originated. And the reason for the controversy is this, that R1A is the world's most successful extended family. It's the most successful genetic lineage that is known to humankind. Its population today is probably more than 1 billion people. And there are two clusters, geographical clusters, where most of these people of this particular lineage live. One is the Indian subcontinent. And the other one is uh, Eastern Europe and Northern Europe. So Poland, Germany, uh, Ukraine, Russia, that, that area. So these are two clusters, geographical clusters, where you find the majority of the males who have this specific genetic lineage. Now the question, so therefore historians and geneticists, etc., have hypothesized that this particular genetic lineage is the one that is associated with the spread of Indo-European languages and culture. So in essence, the people who originally carried this lineage are the original Aryan invaders. And that uh, the, the, the theory is that these people invaded India about two and a half thousand, about, about three thousand years, three and a half thousand years before present from Eastern Europe and from Central Asia. So that is the prevailing consensus opinion among eminent historians right now. So there are a number of questions about it. First of all, there is no evidence of where this particular lineage has originated from. So every genetic lineage has a certain geographical origin. And how do we determine the origin? We find the region where there is the most genetic diversity within that lineage. So the question is, where do we find the most genetic diversity within the R1A lineage? And it is most likely to be India. So there is research being done right now within India by geneticists. Uh, 
some research is being done a lot of research is being done some papers will be published hopefully soon and what is most likely going to happen what is most likely going to emerge from this research is that india is the homeland of the r1a lineage which would which would completely reverse the narrative that is uh, currently prevailing that the aryans invaded india from the west if r1a is the homeland if india is the homeland of the r1a lineage it would indicate that the expansion of r1a happened from outs from within india outwards to the west therefore it would mean that there was an aryan invasion but from india into europe so that is why there is a controversy because uh, the consensus opinion is the is the reverse of that and because the academic system the academic uh, environment the academic milieu is very much eurocentric as of now because all the research all the the major funding and the major uh, research institutes genetic institutes etc are all in the west and they are invested in protecting a certain world view and a certain narrative so that is the reason for this controversy and they are funding many people in india many uh, journalists many writers and therefore uh, there is this conflict that is going on right now between the proponents of one narrative and the proponents of another narrative i am not interested in any narrative i am interested in seeing what the research tells us so most likely the research is going to show that r1a is indian in origin now you asked a question about scythians most scythian skeletons that you find throughout eurasia most of the male scythian skeletons have this r1a lineage so it's clear that uh, the, the scythians were very much part of this expansion whether it's out of india or whether it's out of europe we will soon find out but yes the scythians definitely are very closely genetically culturally and ethnically related to the indian people so that is in brief about r1a thank you yashwant for this question right i have another question here uh one second so this is by rohan choudhury rohan thank you very much for purchasing the super chat uh the question is do you have any idea about kumari kandam the continent that was below india is it a myth so as of now we don't know whether it is a myth or not the the story the the recorded history so to say in um, especially in tamil nadu is that there was a large expanse of land that has now been swallowed up by the sea this was south of the uh, current geographical extent of the indian subcontinent and possibly during the last ice age or so this this particular expanse of land was above the sea and uh, eventually it went under the sea and that's why and that, so that's a story so apparently it's according to this uh, according to this remembered history the tamil people used to live in this uh, extended uh, part of the indian subcontinent and it is called kumari kandam so that is uh, the the uh, remembered history now do we have any evidence of this as of now no we do not if you look at the uh, geological maps of the subsurface extent of the indian subcontinent which extends below the sea to the south it doesn't look like there is any such uh, any such submerged land 
from the evidence that we have as of now. Now we know that geology is something that is always changing. It's always in motion. We recently had the great Andaman earthquake that completely changed the shapes of islands. It it uh, it helped certain islands emerge higher than the, the higher than where they were. It made some islands go a little bit into the sea, and it definitely changed the sub sub ocean subsurface uh, geography of the of the ocean of the ocean floor so if this continent was above the above the ocean more than 10000 years ago then it's possible that it sank below the ocean and some 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 earthquake or something may have disturbed uh, that part of the that, that part of the sub sub ocean region and maybe that's why we're not able to see it that is a possibility but from the evidence that we have right now it looks like we do not have sufficient evidence to to take this idea as of now from a scientific from a narrow scientific perspective to take it seriously as of now but i am open to finding new evidence that may prove it because see the thing is that there are many places where people have very old memories very long memories of things that happened thousands of years ago and eventually they are discovered to be true so is this one of those things that may be discovered to be true in the future yes definitely it is possible so let's wait and watch and uh, hopefully one one finds evidence of this so thank you for the question all right let me find this This is a question by Vaibhav Choudhury. Vaibhav, thank you very much. So the question is: Do you think the Vedic civilization will continue to exist or cease because of Abrahamic? Thank you, Vaibhav. Thank you very much. Uh, so the Vedic civilization, which is our civilization, it still exists to some extent. We, I would not call India as it is today to be a civilization anymore. a civilization has certain characteristics and india is today merely a nation state it is no longer a civilization a civilization is a net exporter of culture so it has a cultural sphere of influence that far exceeds its geographical boundaries and that's what india used to be for thousands of years india has exported culture throughout asia and throughout the rest of the world for thousands of years and a civilization also has other characteristics like it is extremely prosperous it has a strong military it has a strong military sphere of influence it has cultural and uh, national institutions that are rooted in its own indigenous culture so its constitution should be rooted in its own culture its judiciary its legislator legislature its uh, all of its other institutions should be rooted in its own values in its own morals and its own culture so that is not what you find in india today today india's uh, institutions india's constitution india's laws are all western in origin and in nature the morality that they follow is a western morality so it's like we are still ruled by the foreigners even 70 years after we supposedly got our independence and our constitution defines india as a nation state not as a civilization state so i would say that as of today india is not a civilization india is something lesser than a civilization will vedic civilization continue to exist i believe it that we have a very strong chance that it should continue to exist if we are able to reclaim our land reclaim our culture and reestablish it as the primary 
culture of our homeland. I don't think there is anything wrong with that. Every every nation follows its own laws and it has its own values and its own morality and its own and their institutions they follow their the culture that has been part of that land for for as long as it has existed. The, you find this in the Islamic countries. You find this in the West. Many countries are openly Christian countries. Most of the Middle Eastern countries are officially Islamic countries. So I don't see why India can again revert to being a Vedic country. It doesn't mean that we're going to kill the minorities or anything. Vedic religion, Hindu religion has been the most respectful and tolerant towards all other cultures. So there is no uh, question of uh, of of a of the the kind of narrative that is peddled of Hindu supremacy or Hindu majoritarianism or any such thing. So I would say that Vedic civilization could continue to exist. I hope it does, but certain steps will have to be taken for this to happen. So thank you very much, Faber, for this question. All right, let me see what else we have. Hmm. All right, this is a question by Phobic. Uh, did Indians and Chinese know about each other during the Mahabharata era? If yes, how were the relations? So, according to the best evidence that we have, the Mahabharata era must have happened at least 6,000 years before today. And if you look at the history of China as, as a distinct culture and civilization, it is about two and a half or 3,000 years old. Or if you want to be charitable, they are three and a half thousand years old as a distinct culture. So China has a history which is three and a half thousand years old. The Mahabharata happened most likely at least 6,000 years before today. So the Mahabharata predates the Chinese. There were no Chinese and there was no China when the Mahabharata happened. And therefore, they, <laughs> there is no question of Indians and Chinese knowing each other, each other at the time because India did exist as a distinct and uh, very powerful and very influential civilization. But China did not exist at the time. So that is the brief answer to your question. Okay, let me see some more questions. Okay, this is by Dhruva Anindya Ghosh. Are the Yazidis and Kurds ancient Hindus? So the Kurds, the Kurdish people are Muslims today. They are classified as an Iranian ethnic, uh, as an Iranian people, uh, as people who are part of so-called Greater Iran. So their ethnicity is Iranian, which is essentially Indo-Iranian, which means that they, like I have said uh, previously, the Iranians are, if you look at it genetically, from a genetic perspective, the Iranians are part of the same ethnicity as the Indians, the Afghans, the Pakistanis, Nepalis, etc. So that is the uh, extent of this ethnicity and by the same uh, argument the Kurds would also be part of the same ethnicity now were they ancient Hindus culturally we don't have sufficient evidence to come to a definite conclusion about that because the pre-Islamic history of most 
uh, Islamic ethnic groups has essentially been wiped out. We don't know what they were before. So about the Kurds, we don't know what their history was before they became Muslims. What was their culture like? They most likely practiced Zoroastrianism because they are part of the uh, Iranian cultural sphere. So I would say that they practiced Zoroastrianism before Islam. But before Zoroastrianism, what was it? It would most likely have been Vedic Hinduism because the Iranians, the Persians themselves are an offshoot of the various Vedic clans. They are the Parshwa clans. They are the, they are the descendants of the Parshwa clan of the Rig Vedic uh, peoples. So the word Persia comes from the word Parshwa and the word Parshwa comes from the Sanskrit word Parshu, which means the battle axe. So I would imagine that these people, this clan preferred to use the battle axe in warfare or something like that. That's why they are called, they were called the Parshwa people. And they, that name gave, gave rise to the land that they colonized, which is now known as Persia. Their ancient capital was known as Parshwapur. The Greeks called it Persepolis. It's the city that Alexander the Great burned in a night of a drunken rampage. So, right. So that's what that's about the Kurds. About the Yazidis, uh, they practice a religion that appears to be monotheistic, but it has very uh, unmistakable polytheistic roots. Uh, you find elements of nature worship. They worship the serpent. I mean, the serpent is a sacred symbol for them. The peacock is a sacred symbol for them. That is very reminiscent of Shaivite Hinduism. And they worship fire, which is again very reminiscent of Hinduism. The worship of Agni. Agni is one of the principal Vedic gods. So there are unmistakable elements of a pre of an ancient, of a more ancient religion which was practiced, which seems to be very, very similar to Hinduism. Today, they have to pretend like it's a monotheistic religion and they have added some elements, superficial elements of monotheism to the religion so that they, in order for them to survive in the environment that they are in. Uh, genetically and ethnically, again, they seem to be part of the uh, greater Iranian population, which would again... Say, which would again indicate that they have the same cultural roots as the Iranians and the Kurds. So I would say that their origins are most likely Indo-Aryan or Indo-Iranian, which means that their deep ancestry would be culturally Indian or culturally Vedic, if you go back several thousand years. So that's uh, the answer to this question. Thank you very much for this question. All right, let me... Find some more questions. Okay. So, this is a question from Subhajit Pal. If contact is ever established with intelligent alien life forms, how would linguistic flourish as a subject of study and research? So this reminds me of that movie, what's it called? Arrival, I believe, which were, which dealt with the linguistic aspects of communicating with an alien, with an alien civilization. 
So if contact is ever established with intelligent alien life forms, we would definitely need to find some means of communication. And that would depend on their biology and their means of communication. So we humans primarily communicate via sound and sight. Now, what kind of biology would aliens have? Would they also communicate by sound or would they have a different means of communication? So it is a very speculative, hypothetical thing, but definitely we would need some form of communication. We would have to find some mutually intelligible form of communication and all communication eventually boils down to linguistics. So I would imagine it would it would finally bring linguistics into the into the realm of science. So as of today, linguistics is a very it's it's called it is described or portrayed as a science, but it's a very unscientific subject. Uh, linguists deal in a lot of speculation, and there is a lot of consensus building. So if if sufficient people agree to a certain narrative, then that narrative becomes the officially accepted dogma in linguistics today. So if we were to make contact with an alien civilization, then we would have to bring linguistics into the realm of science in order to actually make it work. So that would be a very interesting uh, happening. It would definitely flourish as a subject of research. Great question. Okay, let me see some more questions. All right, Jay Dikshit. Uh, Please tell us about ancient Indian education system. Can we use the system today in India and throw the Macaulay system out? So this is a question that many people asked yesterday as well. The ancient Indian education system was primarily based around temples, which is very counterintuitive because today we see temples as places of worship. So temples were places of worship, but they were also cultural and social centers and so and centers of education. So in ancient India, before the events of the past 1000 years, you had temples everywhere. Every town, every village, every locality had a temple. Usually these would be small temples with one, with one single priest or Brahmin who would carry out the duties. But there would be places where you had larger temples. And every temple was not just a place of worship. It was a school. Uh, the local children would get an education over there. So basically, the smallest temples would impart basic education, uh, language, grammar, basic mathematics, and things like that. The language of education was always Sanskrit. You always had two languages of education. One was Sanskrit and one was your local language. So there is this... Uh, historian called Dharampal, who was a Gandhian who lived in the 20th century, he spent a number of years in the UK. He spent a number of years in Britain after India's independence. And he accessed a lot of the historical data that the British had collected about India's education system before they imposed the Macaulayan system on India. So this data is from the 19th century, essentially. So Dharampal accessed a great amount of this data. He analyzed it. And he wrote a book called The Go the Beautiful Tree, I believe, in which he has uh, shown what kind of education system was still prevalent in the 19th century. So what he found from the British data, which is the British collected, is that temples were the places of education. Education was provided to every child, girls, boys, everybody, 
all the jatis, all the varnas, the so-called castes, everybody got the education. The education was always free. It was subsidized by the local king or ruler or whoever, or whoever it was. So you never had to pay for education. In the small temples, you had basic education, like I said. In larger temples, in bigger cities, you would find that you would get somewhat higher education. And you had the great temples in, in certain places where you were you would get really high education. And then you had the great viharas, monasteries. And then you had the great universities of India, the great Vishwa Vidyalayas. So there were so many of these. Nalanda, Takshashila, Telhara, Udantapuri, Vikramashila, uh, Sharda Peet, and so many more. We only know of a few today, but there were so many more of these. And these great universities were, was where you would get the highest education available anywhere in the world. So you would be taught subjects like pharmacology, toxicology, advanced mathematics, calculus, infinite series, uh, trigonometry, astronomy, and, and much more. And also philosophical subjects. You had so many schools of philosophical thought in India, uh, starting from Charvaka, Vedanta, Mimansa, and so many more. So all of this was taught. All of this was researched. There were many schools of thought. There were many great scholars. And this is the education system that India had. And uh, so the small temples did double as gurukuls, essentially, and so on. So this education system was spread throughout the length and the breadth of this country. And all the education was free. It was open to anybody. And in the great universities, the only impediment to entering was your intellect and your knowledge. So you would have entrance tests. And if you pass the entrance test, if you were found to be at that level of, intellectual, uh, of, of intellect, and if you had that amount, the amount of knowledge required to gain entry, then you would gain entry, you would, you would be given admission, and you would be imparted education for free in these universities. And anybody could, could come to the universities and, and, be, and study there. Many Chinese pilgrims are known to have studied in India's great universities. Even Greek pilgrims have done that, and so on. Scythians too. So it was open to everyone, even to foreigners, even to people who did not identify as Indians or Hindus. It was open to all. The only requirement was that you need to you needed to be at that level of intellect. So that is the kind of education system we had. It was the greatest education system the world has ever seen. Today's education system is, uh, I don't have uh, sufficiently <laughs> strong words to describe how bad it is. It is, it is rubbish. It is a pale imitation of the Western education system. And let me tell you about the West. If you look at the United States, the education system they have imposes an enormous burden on the children, an enormous financial burden on students, especially higher education. I mean, every on average, the, uh, the average student who passes out of this education system at the college level incurs a debt of about 44,000 US dollars. And then they have to work for many years to pay this debt off. So the Western education system, especially the American one, is just is all about commercializing education. Education has become a commodity. Degrees have become commodities. You pay a certain amount of money, you will get uh, admission. And uh, you may even find, unfortunately, uh, there have been certain scandals in the Ivy League universities recently, in which it was found that you could actually pay to get a PhD, and you could actually you could actually purchase degrees there. 
So that is the state of the education system in the, in the United States. It is all about money. It's a capitalist system. I am not advocating Marxism or socialism. I'm just saying that commercializing education is very wrong. It's, it's going to have a very deleterious effect on society. So we are currently trying to copy that system, which is, which is not good at all. It's going to have very adverse effects on Indian society in the long term. In the long in the long term, so is it possible to bring back the old system? It would it would require a great deal of reforms over a certain period of time, but it would be good if we could do that because we had the best system in the world, and it's been destroyed by the British, and we have not taken the initiative to bring it back. So that's the answer. Okay, let me find some more. Okay, this is a question by Aditya Bharadwaj. Thank you, Aditya. What are the significant places for excavation in modern India? Has there been any update on deciphering the underwater remains in the Dwarka Basin? So the first part of the question is, what are the significant places for excavation in modern India? I'll tell you what, wherever you are right now, you take a shovel, dig a trench that is five to 10 meters deep, and you're going to find something interesting from the archaeological perspective. That's how rich India is in its ancient history and its archaeology. India's civilization is minimum 10,000 years old. And it was a vast urban population 5,000 or 6,000 years before today. So what we know is that the Harappan, the so-called Harappan phase of our, of our civilization is essentially concentrated in Western and Northwestern India from Maharashtra in the south, through Gujarat, to, through Madhya Pradesh, parts of UP, Haryana, Punjab, present-day Pakistan, Sindh, and present-day Afghanistan, and parts of Kashmir. So this is the currently accepted extent of the so-called Harappan phase of our civilization. And we have excavated about 1% of the known archaeological sites of the Harappan uh, era of our civilization. The the truth is that the entirety of India was an urban civilization and the Harappan part is just what we have so far taken notice of. If you look at the city of Varanasi and, you, and some archaeological work has been done there, it has been found that, the, that ancient Varanasi was just as urbanized and just as ancient as the so-called so Harappan uh, part, of, part of India. And Varanasi actually seems to be even older than that. So that's one example. We are finding places like Kiladi and other places in the south. These are not separate civilizations. These are just things that we have cherry-picked. Once we start excavating the whole of India, you will find that it was all interconnected. It was all one vast network throughout the Indian subcontinent and it was all the same civilization. You had local manifestations of, the, of culture, but overall it was one culture which connected everything. So I would say that the significant places for excavation are everywhere. Every town, every village, every district, every state has something unique to contribute to the archaeological record of India. There are so many incredible places. Chandraketugar in Bengal. It's an incredible archaeological site. And I can guarantee there are lots lots more in Bengal. There are lots more in Kalinga, present-day Orissa, 
many in, in the south. Anywhere you go in the south, if you're going to do some digging, you're going to find incredible findings. And once this begins, once archaeology is taken seriously and money is invested in doing this, we're going to find that India's civilization is much older than 10,000 years. It's going to go much beyond that. So, so the significant places are everywhere. Now, has there been any update on deciphering the underwater remains in Dwarka? There has been no progress on that. Some archaeological work was done in the 1980s and 90s. It was discovered that the story of the Mahabharata is indeed true, that an ancient city did slide underwater, most likely because of a powerful earthquake, uh, where present-day Dwarka is. So if you go to the site of present-day, modern-day Dwarka, and you go to the sea, the seashore over there, and there is an underwater underwater submerged city there, the old Dwarka, the Mahabharata era Dwarka. And once this was discovered, archaeological work stopped for whatever reason. Because, hey, we should not prove that hey, India's ancient Itihas is actually real history. So the ASI has not done, uh, has not taken any initiative on further exploring Dwarka. I am afraid there may even have been some damage done to that ancient city because of uh, various port work and modern construction activities. I hope it's not too much damaged. I certainly hope that uh, some renewed interest will be shown in properly exploring and cataloging this wonderful treasure of ancient India. So that's the answer to your question, Aditya. Thank you so much. All right, some more questions. This is by Deb. How can the Chinese country be broken or simply how could democracy be installed in China, breaking and throwing away the communist regime? Democracy in China would benefit India. So, see, democracy is a, is a, is a cultural thing. Certain countries and certain cultures are inherently attuned towards being democratic and certain countries and certain cultures are not in are fundamentally disinclined towards democracy so if you look at the history of india you have the mahajanapada era which was essentially republics these were democratic republics you had kings but those kings essentially were agents of the people if you look at the Harappan phase of India's civilization, which is like five, six, seven thousand years old, you will find these great, vast urban population centers, and you will not see a single palace. You will not see a single royal palace anywhere. Which means that there were no, there was no, there was no royalty. There may have been governors and administrators, or even kings by title, but they did not live in a way that was superior to the ordinary people, which indicates you had a form of democracy even during the Harappan phase of India's, of, of India's civilization. So what I'm trying to say is that India has always been an, an inherently democratic culture. Democracy is, is natural to the Indian people, not the Western form of democracy, which we are currently uh, living under, but our own system of democracy, which we had evolved over thousands of years. Now, if you look at China, China has never been a democracy. China has always been an empire. You always had imperial dynasties ruling China. Whether China has been fragmented at times, and it has been unified at times, the 
geographical extent of China was always east of the so-called Great Wall of China. Today's China, it incorporates a lot of territory that has been usurped from other peoples. So the so-called Xinjiang region is not Chinese territory historically. Tibet has historically never been Chinese. Manchuria has historically never been Chinese. Yunnan is not Chinese. It is a Thai ethnic uh, uh, geographical region and so on and so forth. So, so the present day geographical extent of China is rather unnatural. It is all through the strength of conquest. Now, what can be done about China? Can democracy be installed in China? I do not think China will ever be democratic. China will always be an imperialistic and imperial country. Even today, you have a, a so-called Marxist socialist system, but it's actually an imperial system. The, the person who is denoted as the president of China is actually the emperor of China. So it's an imperial system under the guise of a socialist Marxist state. So China is always going to be an imperial uh, culture and civilization. Now, what about the communist regime, which is what you ask? So as of now, the communist regime is very strongly entrenched in China. But if you look at the history of China over the past 2000 years, you see certain patterns that occur over and over and over again. And what you find, it's, it's called dynastic cycles. So you find that a certain dynasty, an imperial dynasty comes to power. And when it comes to power, it is supposed to have the mandate of heaven because it has been able to acquire power over the, over, the, over the people of China. And then over time, this dynasty becomes more and more authoritarian and oppressive. And eventually, it suffers a military defeat or it suffers an insurrection from within and it crumbles and falls. So this typically happens every 70 years or 100 years or so. And then a new, and then there is a, a period of unrest in China. And then a new dynastic cycle emerges. So this is the pattern of history in China for the past 2000 or so years. Now, I would say that the Chinese communist regime is a new dynasty. It is, a, it, they, they say that it is not a dynasty. It is a socialist state, but it is a socialist state that, it is essentially a dynasty masquerading as a socialist Marxist state. So I would say that the, the pattern that China has been observing for the past 200 years, 2000 years will definitely be seen again. So at some point in time, this regime will crumble. What would trigger such an event? Most likely if China were to do some sort of military misadventure and they were to suffer a military defeat, then there would be a strong insurrection from within because the people would see this regime as having lost the mandate of heaven. And then its uh, continuation would be very untenable. It would be on very shaky grounds. So what would possibly trigger the collapse of the communist regime in the future is most likely a military misadventure and a military defeat. Now, where would this happen? One can only speculate, but that is one way it could happen. Would democracy in China benefit India? I would say that uh, India and China have historically never been adversaries. The past 2000 years, India and China have never been adversaries. It's only in the past 60 or 70 years after the communist, communists came to power that India and China became rivals. So I would say that uh, if the communists were to go out of power, it would be beneficial not only for India, but for the whole world. 
So let's see what happens. History is, uh, geopolitics is fickle. Things change very fast. So let's let's wait and watch. Right now, we, we are in a period of great geopolitical churn. This decade especially is going to see a lot of changes, possibly in, in borders and whatnot. So it's it's an interesting time that we live in. So let's see how it goes. All right. Let me see. Chirag, thank you so much. Uh, Lina, I missed your super chat. Let me see where it is. Guys, you need to forgive me if I'm missing some super chats. I am still learning this thing. It's only my second live stream. I'm going to pick up speed and uh, figure out how this works. Okay. Okay. Ashwatthama. Uh, can and should Sanskrit replace English as the lingua franca? and the national language unifying India. Why people from the world learn Chinese, but Indians learn languages of the world? Very good question. So Sanskrit has always been the unifying language of India. The Chola dynasty, which is a Tamil dynasty, conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia, and they spread, they propagated Sanskrit over there as the lingua franca, not Tamil despite being a Tamil dynasty, which tells you that the entirety of the Indian subcontinent used Sanskrit as the civilizational language, as the unifying language. It is the oldest language known to humankind. And when India got its independence, there was a serious discussion about making Sanskrit the national language. But uh, our great Prime Minister, Mr. Nehru prevailed and he made Hindi the national language of India. So I would say that India would greatly benefit if Sanskrit were to be restored to its natural position of being the unifying language. I am not talking about making about Sanskrit supremacy, about Sanskritization. Everybody has their own mother tongue. India is a very diverse country, lots of different languages, lots of different dialects. So I would say that we, we should have a two-language policy. One is the civilizational language and the other is the mother tongue. Everybody should learn these two languages equally well and uh, all languages should be given equal imp importance. But there has to be a unifying civilizational language and the, the natural candidate for that, the only language that, that, that uh, is suitable for that is Sanskrit. So yes, Sanskrit should replace English as the lingua franca and the national language. We should be having this conversation in Sanskrit. It would be so nice if we could all do that. But we are not currently in a position to do that. I hope that future generations will rediscover the greatness of our own civilization language. So why do people from India learn Chinese? Why do people from the world learn Chinese, but Indians learn languages of the world? It's because the Chinese have more self-respect than Indians as of today. I, what I mean to say is that the Chinese government has more self-respect than the Indian government today. If you see the Chinese, uh, there are daily press conferences in, the, in Beijing. The External Affairs Ministry of China does these press conferences every day and they only speak in Chinese. And if you see India's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they, they do press conferences in English which I think is very shameful. You should at least do it in Hindi. 
so the indian government and the indian uh, indian institutions the indian bureaucracy and the indian establishment needs to learn to respect its own culture and history and i hope that happens someday someday in the near future as of now we are stuck in the in the current scenario but yes we need to st- if they are not doing it we need to start show some initiative and start uh learning our own history and start learning sanskrit it would be really beneficial to all of us so so that's the answer thank you very much for your question asim dugal asim thank you so much so what are the reasons behind the language of indus valley remaining undeciphered despite similarity in vedic indus culture why is the language a mystery with no connection with sanskrit what a wonderful fantastic question so there is something called uh the frawley paradox it's uh, its originator is dr david frawley who is a very famous indologist he is an american hindu very nice person and a great scholar so frawley's paradox says that india has the world's the world's most uh extensive ancient literature which is sanskrit literature even though most of india's literature was destroyed in the burning of our great universities even though this happened we still have millions of ancient manuscripts that are gathering dust in various uh, archives and various temples and all that so we have the world's greatest literary tradition the oldest literary tradition and we also have the one of the world's the world's greatest ancient uh, urban population center the the greatest world's greatest ancient civilization which is the harappan civilization and historians would like to would like us to believe that this literary tradition that we have has come from the central asian steppe and from europe and this great population center is completely different from that so that is the frawley paradox we have this great population center and we have this great literary tradition in sanskrit and we are unwilling to put two and two together and associate these two with each other so the 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 point is that the language of the indus valley civilization the so called harappan civilization was most likely vedic or post vedic sanskrit there is no other logical alternative some proponents of the aryan invasion theory or the aryan migration theory soon to be aryan tourism theory they would like us to believe that this was a dravidian civilization and proto tamil or something like that was the uh, language of the indus valley region well what evidence do you have for this there is none whatsoever and there is beginning to emerge some evidence that the indus valley script may be the precursor of the brahmi and kharosthi scripts which were used to write most ancient languages in india primarily sanskrit now why has this script not been deciphered yet because nobody has <laughs> see to decipher an ancient script you need funding you need a think tank you need to bring a number of brains together you need to bring a number of scholars together and that has never happened in this country the government has never shown any 
genuine willingness to do this. So what's happening is that you have isolated scholars trying to do this work of deciphering the script, but it's uh, so far never happened. And another possible reason may be that the script that we find in these ancient inscriptions may just be a form of shorthand. And maybe the, the people of that era of our civilization, maybe they used to write the actual script on paper, on a form of paper or on cloths. And maybe none of that has survived over these thousands of years. So what we are left with is this form of shorthand, which is not really the real script that they used. That is also a possibility. So that is, of course, speculation. We don't have evidence for that, but it is a possibility. So what I would like to see happen is that we should start using machine learning and artificial intelligence to, to start parsing and analyzing this ancient, whatever uh, evidence of ancient script that we have collected thus far and try and see which linguistic morphology it matches the most closely. So that could be a good start. So we need to start using technology to tackle these old unsolved problems. So that's what I would like to see happen. My strong conviction is that the people of the Harappan era and the geographical region, they spoke Vedic or post-Vedic Sanskrit. This is definitely a post-Rigvedic part, uh, post-Rigvedic phase of our civilization. Because if you see the Rig Veda, it speaks about a pastoral India. It doesn't speak of any urban centers at all. It speaks about a rural phase of India's civilization, which must have happened long before the urban phase of India's civilization, which is called the Harappan phase. So I am convinced that the language of the Harappan civilization was either Vedic or post-Vedic Sanskrit, definitely pre-Paninian Sanskrit. So let's see. I hope that this mystery will be resolved sooner rather than later. Thank you for the question. All right. Let me see what else do we have. Okay, this is a question from Deb. What is the future of this world in terms of geopolitics? Will borders exist in the future or will the world simply be a big global village, as many says, or will there be something else? Well, right now the future of the world is up for grabs. We don't know in what direction things will go. Currently, as we see, big tech companies are slowly but steadily encroaching upon the sovereignty of nations. So for example, you have something like Twitter, which is trying to dictate what people can say and cannot say within the geographical sovereign region of India. So they have encroached, they have come into our nation via the internet and they are trying to regulate how we speak and how and what kind of discussions we can have. So this is a direct challenge on the sovereignty of India and of every other nation. Recently, I believe Facebook said that Australian users would no longer be allowed to use Facebook because of some law that the government of Australia passed. And I think the Australian government had to retract that law. So they are these big tech companies are able to exert pressure on sovereign governments and they are trying to bring themselves or position themselves 
at the same level as sovereign governments. So Twitter would like to have a dialogue with the Indian government about what constitutes free speech. So this shows you that sovereignty is in danger of crumbling and the entire geopolitical system that we have may soon become obsolete because of the intrusive presence of big tech companies and social media and all that. So that would be one way of making borders obsolete. The second thing that could happen would be that the entire world becomes just one culture, once again because of the pervasive nature of, of internet and the social media. So you have all these narratives that are that are funded by billions of dollars of money and you see these hashtags everywhere and these narratives everywhere and people are beginning to imbibe these uh, foreign notions, whatever they are. So slowly, this is this is a form of social engineering that is being that is being done online, <clears throat> and it is very effective. So that could again make borders obsolete, and if there is a, a future conflict, that could also make the world and the, the other the the borders obsolete. So right now things are up for grabs. Geopolitically, it's a time of great churn. Right now, the supremacy of the West is declining. The West is in decline. It has lost its moorings, so to say. Uh, there used to be a certain way of thought that uh, the West is uh, civilizationally and morally and economically and militarily superior to the East. So that has long since crumbled. And uh, so, so the world is currently in a, in a phase of great upheaval. And this decade could definitely be one of the most important decades in geopolitics because the situation that we are in right now, the world has changed a lot in the past one and a half years. It has changed beyond what we could have imagined in 2019. And this is most likely something that has been engineered. And uh, the the world's GDP is is declining. Most big... uh, most big nations are seeing the GDP decline. China's GDP is shooting up. So there is definitely a bid for global supremacy that we are witnessing in real time right now. So the future of the world is up for grabs. I think, uh, will there be a conflict in the near future? There could be. I believe China may very well invade Taiwan within the next five to 10 years. And once it, it will do that, once it is convinced that the West is, in no, is no longer in a position to interfere or to stop them. And once China captures Taiwan, then their navy will be free to come eastwards, or sorry, to come westwards, which is in the Indian Ocean region. And unfortunately, India has done nothing to create a blue water navy. A couple of submarines doesn't cut the bill by far. So yeah, things are changing and let's see how it goes. There's a lot which could happen in the near future. Right. So thank you for the for the question. All right. Okay, let's take a physics question. It's by Priyanka. Uh can quantum mechanics solve the human brain mechanism? And can consciousness be described by particles dual nature? So there is a school of thought that says that uh, the 
that that consciousness is an emergent phenomenon which emerges from the biochemistry of the brain and that it has a quantum mechanical origin so it is quantum processes inside the brain that give rise to an emergent phenomenon called consciousness so this is a theory that has been put forward by um, Roger Penrose and one of his collaborators uh so yeah there is a school of thought that says this it is not proven thus far it is interesting but we don't know whether it is true or not is consciousness so is uh, so quantum mechanics may possibly have a role to play in the human brain mechanism essentially the entire reality as we see it emerges from the laws of quantum mechanics how exactly it happens we are still trying to understand it we don't have all the answers quantum mechanics is fundamentally weird and we understand very little of it we know how it works we know how to use it for calculating we know how to use it for creating technologies everything we have today is most likely is is to some extent at least thanks to quantum technologies the communication that we are doing right now is would not have been possible without technologies that were made possible by quantum mechanics so we know how to use it but we don't know what it is what is what it is saying to us okay the second question is can consciousness be described by particles dual nature we don't know we don't even know what consciousness is we don't even have a definition of consciousness it is the biggest mystery in science right now until now it has been thought of as a spiritual or philosophical concept but now it has become front it has come front and center in science so as of now we have absolutely no idea of what of what consciousness is there are lots of interesting speculations but there is very little concrete work being done or concrete theories so so it's a it's a field of active investigation as of now okay let me see okay string theory what is string theory <clears throat> so like i said we do not really understand quantum mechanics and one of the basic assumptions in quantum mechanics and in most physics is that particles are points so we have done this oversimplification of considering particles to be zero dimensional points and all our calculations are based on that all our theories are constructed on the basis on on the basis of this assumption on the basis of this simplification and we get very good results with the theories that we have do give us very good uh, explanations of how the universe works we are able to understand the laws of physics and the forces and their interactions very well via the the theory via quantum field theory which is very very uh, successful it's a very successful theory and yet there is one very big problem we don't know how gravity works at the quantum scale and so to resolve this problem string theory was was invented so in string theory we don't take particles to be zero dimensional points instead we it is postulated that the entire universe is composed at the most fundamental level of one dimensional vibrating strings so that is the fundamental core premise of string theory and then you use mathematics to build that to build upon that and what we have found is that you that string theory 
simply doesn't work in ordinary three-dimensional or four-dimensional space. You need 10 dimensions to make the mathematics of string theory work. So that is a problem. And then people have come up with the ideas like the compactification of dimensions and so forth. But the real problem with string theory is that it doesn't make any predictions that are testable or falsifiable. It simply doesn't make any such, any such predictions. So it is a theory that is speculative in nature. It is a beautiful theory. The mathematics is beautiful. It's very complicated. But it is a theory that is non-falsifiable and it has not been able to make any testable predictions. So as of now, more and more people are of the opinion, more and more scientists, more and more physicists are of the opinion that string theory has essentially thus far been a failure. And uh, so right now in physics, we have hit essentially a brick wall. There is, a, we are not able to make progress right now for the past 30, 40 years, ever since the theory of cosmological inflation was, was proposed by Alan Guth. After that, no new theory has come out. So that's where we are in physics right now. It is a time of crisis in theoretical physics. Okay, next question. Okay. This is by Legal Freedom. Thank you very much, sir. So the question is, I want to study about Champa, today's Vietnam, and the capital Pandurangas, today Panrang. Yeah, very interesting. So this is part of Southeast Asia. The Champa kingdom was a vassal of the Chola Empire. It was a Hindu Shaivite kingdom in Vietnam, in southern Vietnam. And after the Chola Empire declined, Champa itself became a great maritime empire, a thalassocratic empire, which means it had a great navy. And what is now known as the so-called South China Sea was historically always known as, as, the, as the Champa Sea because it was the Champa kingdom and the Champa empire that had complete naval control over this particular sea. So the correct name of the South China Sea is the Champa Sea. And uh, Panduranga in Panrang also is a very interesting place. It's another part of Southeast Asia, which is Hinduized, which was Hinduized. Eventually, it became, uh, it became Buddhist in nature over time. So how to study this? The only way to study it is to read articles online because there are no books about this. Nobody has bothered to write uh, any decent book about the, these uh, particular kingdoms and dynasties. There were many dynasties, many great kings. And if you go to these places, you will find beautiful Shaivite temples, you will find Shivlingas, you will find uh, statues of Nandi, you will find great statues of Apsaras and dancers and whatnot. And uh, unfortunately, no historian in India has bothered to take any interest in this and nobody has written books about this. So the only way to gather information is to search online, read uh, read scholarly articles, if any. Uh, see, uh, try to see if people have taken videos about that, you know, travel videos and so on. And uh, and maybe look on archive.org, maybe some ancient or older books may be present which describe the culture of the, this era. But as far as I know, I am not aware of any good books or good literature 
about these kingdoms, which is very unfortunate, very unfortunate. So I hope that in the future, Indian historians will take a greater interest in exploring our ancient connection with Eastern Asia, which is a very, very rich connection. So I hope that happens in the future, in the near future. Thank you for your question. Okay, I will take a couple of more questions. Indic knowledge, Subhash Chandra Bose mystery. All right. So the main question is, what happened to Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose? Did he die in that alleged plane crash in Formosa in Taiwan? Or did he return to India and spend the rest of his days in anonymity? So my opinion is very clear. I do not believe the plane crash theory. I believe it is fiction. I believe that Subhash Chandra Bose had, I don't know what exactly happened to him, but I am pretty sure that he returned to India and the person who was later described as described as Gumnami Baba was most likely Subhash Chandra Bose. That is my opinion. I believe Anuj Dhar has done a great deal of research about this. And I think if I'm not mistaken, he has even written a book about this. And other people have also written about this. So there is no evidence of a plane crash in Taiwan on that date, whatever it is said. And there is no evidence of uh, Subhash Chandra Bose's uh, ashes being there in the Rinkoji temple in Japan. So these are most likely false pieces of false evidence that that were planted to support this theory that he died in a plane crash. Most likely the person called Gumnami Baba was Subhash Chandra Bose. I would like to see the government declassify whatever documents it has so that we can finally find out the truth. I'm sure the government knows what happened. So I hope it is declassified and we can know about what happened to this great son of India. All right. Mayank Thar. Can you please explain the chronology of Indian history starting from Ramayana, then Mahabharat till Harappa and maybe even beyond that? That is a very vast chronology, but uh, let me try and uh, tell you in brief. So the earliest known phase of India's civilization is the Rig Vedic phase in which India was essentially a rural agrarian civilization. It was a culture that did not have any cities at that time. So that talks about a time that is most likely eight or 10,000 years before today. That is the Rig Vedic phase of India's civilization. And the Puranas even describe certain events that happened before the Rig Veda was written. So there was definitely something that happened. There was a phase of India's civilization that was even before the Rig Vedic phase. So that is where essentially India's the, that, that's where our memory, our collective memory of India civilization begins during the Rig Vedic and the Puranic phase. After that, you had the Ramayana at, certain, at a certain point in time, which again was a very long time before present. Then you had the Mahabharata. And then you had an urban phase of India's civilization, which is called the Harappan phase of India's civilization. And then because of climate change, the rivers in the Sapta Sindhu shrunk, shrank, the Saraswati dried out, 
and those great population centers were abandoned slowly over many centuries it was not an abrupt event it was a gradual abandonment of those great population centers and india's population moved to various other parts of india into interior india like gujarat rajasthan and further east like present day uttar pradesh etc and then you had the classical paninian era of india civilization when panini's grammar of the sanskrit language was, was written that is the time approximately when you had the great universities of takshashila nalanda and all that and uh, then you had the gautam uh, then you had gautam buddha panini was after gautam buddha most likely so you had gautam buddha about 2500 bce then you had the mauryan dynasty and then we know what the history of our country of our civilization is like because that is reasonably well documented you had the skythian invasion then you had the kushan invasion uh, the kushans produced great emperors like kanishka some of the greatest emperors we have ever seen then you had the gupta empire which was another great era of india's civilization then you had some fragmentation you had the the invasions by the shweta hunas the heptalites who invaded in numerous waves and eventually succeeded in in conquering parts of india and they assimilated into india's culture and population and then as you know the islamic invasions begin and then we know the story so that is a very brief description of india's chronology starting from the very beginning i hope that answers your question all right let me take two more questions then we will be done for today all right how do we get from this is from aditya sundareshan thank you for the question how do we get from where we are to being 1.0 on the kardashev scale is there a great filter between us and being a kardashev 1.0 plus civilization so for those of you who do not know the kardashev scale is a hypothetical scale of civilizational advancement it was uh, proposed by the uh, soviet scientist astronomer nikolai kardashev in the 1960s i believe so there are three uh, stages on the scale uh, stage 1 stage 2 and uh, stage 3 so if you are a level 1 civilization it means that you have you have developed the means of harnessing the entire energy and and all the resources of your home planet it means that you can control the weather you can uh, harness all the minerals and uh, you can control essentially everything that happens on the planet and all the energy that comes out of it so currently we are not at kardashev 1.0 we are below that because we still cannot control the weather we still cannot control the oceans we still can't stop earthquakes we are very energy inefficient we are still destroying the planet because of population or because of overpopulation because of pollution and much more so we are very far from being 1.0 on the kardashev scale uh is there a great filter i think the we are currently technologically very not not quite as advanced as one would need to be and there are great impediments we are not unified as as one on the planetary scale 
most of our energy and efforts are are focused on fighting each other so if you would use all that funding and all that scientific advancement in you know making the planet a better place and and making it safer for humanity and solving the real problems then we would be closer we would start moving closer to becoming a kardashev 1.0 civilization so yes we are very far from it right now the main filter is that we are so disunited we are at logger heads with each with each other there are so many geopolitical conflicts cultural conflicts there are so many battles for supremacy going on ideological supremacy religious supremacy and all that so that is essentially taking away all of our energy and focus from where it should be so that's why we are very far from being a kardashev 1.0 civilization and just fyi kardashev 2.0 means you can means it is a civilization that can control the entire energy and resources of its entire solar system and kardashev 3 is a civilization that can control its home galaxy all the resources and all the energy so that's what the kardashev kardashev scale is about so we are very far from being even 1.0 all right i'm going to take one last question for today and then we shall continue tomorrow uh let me quickly find something uh all right this is by somya deep choudhury how did indian how did ancient indian people scientists do research and development were there their own labs or what so like i said india's ancient education system was based around temples at the smallest scale then you had great greater temples you had viharas monasteries and then you had great universities and all of these were state funded so the scientists and scholars did not need to seek funding the funding was given to them they did not need to work for a livelihood they all the, their only duty was to teach and and to uh, take their field of study and research forward so how did scientists do research and development so the science that we had the technology that we had at the time was essentially uh hydro engineering we had navigation we had naval ships and all that we had great ships india was always a seafaring civilization they have we had great seafarers in the rigveda itself there are descriptions of ships with 100 oars so indians used to travel have great sea voyages in the ancient days so there was a lot of technological development so technological development goes hand in hand with scientific development so india was the most advanced scientific civilization of its time the research and development was not done in labs because we did not have quantum physics and nuclear fission and things like that but indians did develop electricity there is an ancient text which which shows how to create a voltaic cell so i think the whatever research and development was done was done at whatever level was possible at the time there was a great deal of astronomy so 
we had astronomical research. India was the most advanced civilization when it comes to astronomy. The ancient Indian calendar is still the most advanced calendar that humankind has ever devised. It is more accurate than the current calendar we are using throughout the world. So India was very advanced in astronomy. Astronomy needs observational evidence. So we had observatories and much and, and things like that. So that is how ancient science was done. We did not have big labs, but we had universities where scientists would get together and they would do their work. And we had great mathematicians. Calculus was first developed in India. It was not developed by Newton and, uh, and the other guy. It was developed in India at least 100 years before Isaac Newton. And uh, trigonometry was also developed in India. In finite series were developed in India. Ayurveda, the science of Ayurveda, which was must have taken thousands of years to develop, also developed in India. Pharmacology, toxicology, and so many other sciences, they were developed in India over centuries or millennia. And eventually all of this knowledge made its way into the West because of the Islamic invasions where all this knowledge was taken out of India's universities and libraries. And the, the Arabs were very happy to acknowledge the fact that this knowledge came from India. And even the mathematicians in Europe like Fibonacci, they readily acknowledged that this mathematics and this knowledge came from India. It is later that the Jesuit priests stole more knowledge, more data from India, and they passed it off as their own <laughs> development. So that's what happened. So there was a great deal of research and development in India, not through labs, but in universities, in great ancient universities. Okay, I will take one more question before we finish. All right, this is about geopolitics. It's from Deb. How can India upgrade itself to combat China for possible Chinese threats in the future? I would say the number one thing India needs to do is to develop a blue water navy. The Indian establishment keeps saying that the Indian Ocean is our strategic backyard. Well, what have you done to actually make it your strategic backyard? Do we have a navy that is sufficient to patrol the Indian Ocean region 24 by 7? Our Navy isn't even sufficient to patrol our coastline effectively because we have such an enormous coastline. So India needs to invest in a blue water Navy. India needs to spend a lot of investment in building a blue water Navy and that needs to happen very, very fast. And the strength of a Navy is not measured in the number of ships it has. It is measured by the number of missiles you can put out at sea on a given day. So that is what India needs to do. It needs to develop its military firepower. It needs to ensure that there is distributed lethality, which is a very important concept that I will explain in another episode. So I would say that the number one thing India should do is to develop a powerful Navy and to invest very seriously in scientific research and development, especially in the cyber domain and especially in combating bioweapons, because that's what's happening right now. I'm not saying we should develop bioweapons, but we should have the ability to counter threats of bioweapons. So these are some of the things that India should do. All right, I'm going to end here. Thank you so much for your questions. It was wonderful interacting with you all. And we're going to continue this tomorrow. 
So I think in the future, going forward, we should have some theme for every discussion, for every question answer session. So tomorrow I'm going to talk about Chinggis Khan. So I have made a video about Chinggis Khan. Most likely you, all of you must be knowing about it. So it addresses the question of why Chinggis Khan refused to invade India, even though he was at India's doorstep. So I have addressed that specific narrow question, but there are lots of questions that have been asked of me. And I'm sure you have many questions. There is a greater context to the story. And there is a lot of learnings that we can learn from Genghis Khan as a, as a ruler and as a leader. So that's what I would like to take up tomorrow. So please come up with your questions, keep some questions ready, and I will answer all of your questions about Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire tomorrow. Thank you very much and have a good night, have a good day, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.